as I look back at my career, and this is particularly true, I left teaching after two years, highly successful. I was exhausted. Mm. I was depressed. I suddenly realized I can't do this. And being in a highly, in a socioeconomic disadvantaged school, I had a lot of kids with problems that I could not help them solve. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you, my podcast listeners, based on the lessons I've learned from all of my guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A.E. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest Mark Miller. Mark, are you ready to rock? You betcha. <laughs> we just had a nice little chat before we turned on the re recording, and I know you are ready to rock. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the audience. Mark Miller is the founder of Career Pivot, which helps those in the second half of life design careers that they can grow into for the next 30 years. Mark authored the book, Repurpose Your Career, a practical guide for the second half of life, published in September 2019. Mark is a recovering engineer, a multi-potentialite, and a professional career changer, as he has made six career pivots over the past 35 years. Mark is also the podcast host of the award-winning Repurpose Your Career podcast. You can learn more about him at Career Pivot and the Repurpose Your Career podcast by visiting careerpivot.com. Mark, take a minute and fill in further tidbits about your life. Well, as I said, I'm a recovering engineer. Yes, there's a 12-step program for that. <laughs> and I live in Ajiji, Mexico, where we have lived for the last three years. We've lived through the pandemic here. My wife and I lived in Austin, Texas for 40 years, where I spent much of my career in the high tech world. When I finally got, I joke, I've, I've left tech twice. The first time I left, you'll hear about the story. The second time <laughs> I left, I joke, I relapsed. Mm. <laughs> and personally being a, a member of a 12-step program, I know what you're talking about, about saying you're recovering <laughs> X, X, X. Yeah. Or, <laughs> plug in whatever your addiction is there. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, I normally would ask you some questions about what you're doing and all that, but I know that you've got a pretty powerful story to tell. And I know that so much of what you're doing now and what you think now goes back to that story. So I think it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. I graduated from college in 1978 with an engineering degree. And I did what my parents expected to me. I went to work for the big father-like company. I went to work for the Borg. Oh, I mean, IBM. <laughs> and... And I spent 22 years there and I wandered around a lot and great experience in 99. They screwed me in my pension. 
I gave them the single finger salute and went to work for a successful semiconductor startup. And so here we are, we're rolling along, dot-com bust is rolling down. I mean, it's, and we're, I'm fine. My son is getting ready. He graduates in June of 2002. He's heading off to college. And then on July 11th of 2002, I'm a big time cyclist. I'm riding with my bicycle club and we were on what I thought was a pretty non-risky ride, but in hindsight, it was incredibly risky, lots of blind turns. And I came down a hill, turned into a blind turn. The road was cambered the wrong way. So I couldn't hold the turn. And I was going about 30 miles an hour and I slammed into a Toyota Corolla head on. And, you know, my buddies who were in front of me thought a gunshot had gone off. And to put it bluntly, with all things considered, I was freaking lucky. I hit the grill. My right knee has a uh, right leg has a big scar from hitting the headlight. I smashed the hood. I smashed the windshield. I smashed the roof and I went over the top and I was fortunate. It was on a Sunday morning in Westlake, Texas, which is a very hoity toity neighborhood. And the first two people who came across me was uh, two doctors coming off of their duties at, at Brackenridge medical center. And they took me to the, the emergency room. I then spent five days in the trauma center. I tore up a knee, I broke a hip, I dislocated a shoulder, broke a bunch of ribs, broke the clavicle, had imprints of the pads in my head, but I had no internal injuries and no brain injuries I'm willing to admit to. And by the way, at those speeds where our combined speeds exceeded 50 miles an hour, you have about a 10% survival rate. So they had me walking on crutches in three days. They threw three titanium screws in my hip, not steel, but titanium. And they had me walking on crutches in three days. I was back on a bike in 10 weeks, flying back to China in four months. Oh, by the way, I flew back into China in November of 2002 into Shenzhen or Guangdong province, which was the epicenter of SARS V1. <laughs> and there's a whole story behind there because I didn't know I was there. I was there for three days to train Huawei, the one of the bad boys of China. Yep. And I knew afterwards that a lot of people around me got sick. I remember there was a woman who was on the flight into Hong Kong who was sitting next to me in business class. I emailed her afterwards. She was there to buy coffee makers. And I asked her, how was your trip? And she says, oh, I got really sick. And we didn't know till three months later, that was SARS V1. Mm. And, you know, we went from there to to Shanghai, to Nanjing, to Seoul. And so, yeah, <laughs> this is deja vu all over again. So there I am. I'm questioning, okay, why did I live? And at the same time, my son was home with me the entire summer after graduating from high school and I'm rehabbing. And we have all these great conversations like, you're going to college. You can eat like crap or you can eat healthy. Your first college roommate, not going to be your best buddy. The odds of throwing two 18-year-old boys in the same room and them hitting off perfectly, but you have to respect each other's privacy. 
And we had a bunch of conversations like that over the summer. And as you can tell, I'm very direct. Mm. And what I learned four years later when he graduated and came home was he listened. Anyone who's had raised an 18 year old boy, you have no idea when you say something, what sticks. (laughs) And so if I hadn't had the bike accident, I wouldn't have had that time with my son. So it was a blessing. At the same time, I'm going, why am I doing this? I had received enough. Our company was bought out by Lucent, which I like to call the, the sister of the Borg. Right. And Lucent just imploded. And at the same time, we were a Gira as we were bought. They then spun out Lucent and Microelectronics as a gear systems. They had the name and the URL. I was part of the team. We were 17,000 employees when we were spun out. When I left two years later, we were down to 6,000. And I was on the team that was deciding who got laid off next. Mm, No fun. No fun. And so I'm going... Why am I doing this? Basically, I got enough in retention bonuses that we paid off the house. We funded our kids' college education. So at 46, I was debt-free. We weren't rich, but I was definitely debt-free. Wait a minute, 46. That's almost halfway through your life. That's right. (laughs) Well, actually, it's really a third because I have planned on living to 125 or whatever. What age Um, were you at the time of the accident, by the way? I was 46, 46. Okay. So that time or Got it. 40, yeah, I was 46. Okay. And so it was like, okay, why am I doing this? And I decided I was going to go teach high school math. By the way, I was for the previous 10 years, I was a geek that could speak. Right. And I said, well, I'm going to go do good. And one of the things I learned about myself, and by the way, I, I'm an observer of people. I've traveled the world. Where did I get hired? I got hired in a relatively new high school in Austin, Texas, that was 70% Hispanic, 80% socioeconomic disadvantage, i.e. free and reduced lunch. Mm. And in my first three weeks, I just figured out that I'm dealing with a new culture, poverty. Yep. Well, I trained engineers in China. If I can do that, I can do anything. But what I also discovered was I had convinced myself I had been an extrovert because I was on stage. I was good. I was Mm. great up there. By the way, when I was done, I was exhausted. Yeah. When we finish this interview, we'll be tired. (laughs) And I don't get energy from being on stage or being around people, although I like it. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of energy. And this is where. One of the things I learned through this whole experience was over the years, I had managed to twist myself into a pretzel. I had remade who I was to make more money. And by the way, I got really good at this stuff. Mm. By the way, it was really, really harmful to me because I commonly say when many of us graduated from college and we started our careers, we become actors. We play roles. And very often we learn to play roles that are not who we are. We get good at them. We get lots of positive feedback. By the way, when we hit our 50s and 60s, 
staying in character becomes exhausting. Well, as I look back at my career, and this is particularly true, I left teaching after two years, highly successful. I was exhausted. Mm. I was depressed. I suddenly realized I can't do this. And being in a highly, in a socioeconomic disadvantaged school, I had a lot of kids with problems that I could not help them solve. Right. Right. And I'm glad I did it, but it totally and completely exhausted me. And it's one of the things I realized, oh, I may be good at this. I just can't do it full time. And, and this is one of the challenges I find with working with particularly doctors and lawyers who get really addicted to the money and the prestige. And when they suddenly say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, they get all this pushback from everybody else. Oh, you're so good at it. Why would you want to do it? You make so much money. Why would you want to stop? It's because I don't like doing it anymore. And so what I learned, my worst investment was learning over the years to change myself. I'm a big time introvert. If you met me, you'd never know that. I've dealt with this pandemic really well. You know, I'm on Zoom a lot, but, Mm. you know, but that's mostly one-on-one. I like talking with people one-on-one. And so what necessarily makes us successful in our careers isn't always a really good investment. Mm. (laughs) It may be a financially good investment, but is it the right thing for us? The answer is... And where I particularly find this is with creatives. Creatives who are, yeah, I claim I've worked with several who they've taken their creativity and they put it in a little box and they sealed up the box. They put all the creativity in the box and they put it underneath the bed and they forget about it. And they hit their 50s and 60s and then they suddenly go, I can't take this anymore. Because we don't have the stamina that we had when we were younger or more importantly, we don't put up with the BS anymore. Yeah. It's like, you can't, it's, it's tougher to hold things in. It's just, it's, it's so much work. It's I think what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. And so you suddenly start going, okay, all this stuff keeps on popping up. So my, my years, you know, I left teaching after two years. I then did a year of nonprofit work. I then, got sucked into another startup. I quote, I relapsed. <laughs> it was a predecessor of Zoom. I worked for a sociopath. There were six of us who worked for him and three of us quit. Two of them got fired and one was a walking coronary. And I said, when I left in 2011, I said, I'm not doing that anymore. And I had enough FU money that said, I don't have to. Now we had to make some very conscious decisions And by the way, one of the conscious decisions was in 2018 was to move out of the country and move to Mexico. But it's one of those things of all of that was triggered by the bike accident, which I refer to as a moment of clarity. We are thrown out of our comfort zone. Literally. Right. We are going, okay, why the hell am I doing this? And what happens is in these moments of clarity, and by the way, this can be a marriage, divorce, Mm. it can be good things, bad things. What happens is the filters come down because we look at life through filters. 
Yep. The filters protect us. Right. And during those times, the filters come down and you go, oh, this is what life is really like. <laughs> I'll use the example back in 1992, Christmas of 92, I ruptured the L4, L5 disc in my back. And I decided to take three months off on disability and let it heal. I didn't, I, as I say, I don't like doctors with sharp implements. Yeah. And by the way, that was during, I was working for IBM and IBM went through its near bankruptcy. When I came back, I had so much clarity that because I, everything was taken away. I spent two plus months in bed. Yeah. You know, I remember when I finally could roll over on my side in bed. Oh God, that was wonderful. Cause I laid on my back the entire time mm. and you suddenly, you learn to appreciate the small things. So these moments of clarity are really, really important to take advantage of them. That's what I've written down a lot of things in relation. And the latest one is this moment of clarity. But I wonder, could you now summarize what you took away, you know, what you learned from this experience? Because also keep in mind, there are some listeners out there that are facing in, in its own way an equally painful setback, knockback. So for those people out there, I want you to think about, you know, what did you learn from it? Well, what I learned is I had a lot of preconceived ideas on what I should do. I like call that the S word. You know, <laughs> there should be peace on earth and goodwill towards men and the Arabs and Israelis should not fight and da, 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 da. But of stepping back and saying, what do I really want to do? Similarly, as you can appreciate, we've stopped buying stuff. We've simplified our lives. And that all goes back to that because you realize what was important. In fact, there's a great George Carlin video on stuff <laughs> from the early 1980s. And it's really interesting. We do a lot of things because of stuff. And Two of my favorite books are, one, Dr. Henry Cloud wrote the book Necessary Endings, and that is, in order for new things to begin, we often have to end old things. And by the way, we suck at ending things, mm -hmm. relationships, jobs, career. The second book is Richard Leitner called Repacking Your Bags. And the concept there is periodically in times of your life, you need to unpack your bags throw things away that are not, that don't serve you anymore and repack. In these times when we're really in hard times, it's time to step back and say, hmm, do I really need this crap? Do I need X, Y, Z? Do I need to stay in this relationship? What do I need to end? And I'll use the example for me when we moved to Mexico. I started, I read the book Necessary Innings. I'm going, why am I still in Austin? Mm. I've been there for 40 years. Why am I still here? My job doesn't require me to be there. My family, my wife and I are there, but I mean, other than I have friends and I have a network, it wasn't the same place. It wasn't the great place I moved to in 1978. So why am I still here? It's called inertia. <laughs> we all get in that. So I think... It's looking at 
how does, in my case, how does Mark do a better job of taking care of Mark? What's really important, particularly for those of us in our 50s and 60s who've been displaced, the world's not going to go back the way it was. So what do you want to do? Because the world you left a year ago probably doesn't exist anymore. You can look and say, you know, the world is my courtyard. It's my, you know, it's everything. So what do I really want to do? Not what other people think I should do. Yeah. And there's another angle for people that get over 50. And that is something that my dad said to me when he was older. He said, for the first time in my life, the horizon is shrinking. And that was like, wow. You know, like in our youth, the horizon is widening. The opportunities are opening up. And so there's that shrinking horizon that is another factor that puts some pressure. Maybe I want to go through some things that I took away from what you've shared. There's five things I've taken away from what you've shared. And I'm going to sum it up in five kind of words or word number one, gratitude. Word number two, like, as in like what you do. Word number three, simple. Keep it simple. Word number four, clarity. And word number five is let go. And to just go through those a little bit, talk about gratitude for a moment. What I always tell people is that if you really, you know, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling down, just go to a local hospital. And in that hospital will be some people who will be seeing the last light of day today. Tomorrow they will be gone. And they would give anything to have your problem. So that's my challenge to the listener. You know, if you really feel like you're really down, go somewhere where people are literally losing their life. And then it gives you some appreciation. The next thing is this idea of liking what you do. And I tell a story about my sister, who's a pretty good artist. And I was visiting her in Kennebunk many years ago, and we were in a coffee shop. And she said, you see that picture on the wall? I said, yep. And she said, I, I painted that. I said, well, how did it get in this coffee shop? She said, I sold it to him. I said, how much did you sell it to him for? And she said, you know, a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And I said to her, you know, why don't you do that for a living? You could just be in the basement. You could paint and then you could sell these, you know, and you could get better at it and all that. And she looked at me and she said something I'll never forget. She says, I don't like painting. And it just, how could it that you could have this skill? And it's just not something that you want to do. You know, maybe I don't want to be in a basement and she wanted to be, a, you know, she's always been a mortgage broker and she has her own business and she likes helping people. And so that's the concept of like. Now, the next one is simple. And what I always say to people is life is simple. If you find that it is not, stop. Take a step back. Take a moment and work to simplify it. And that's what you've talked about. You've talked about the moment of clarity. And for the listeners out there, when is your moment of clarity? Did you have it already? Are you having it right now? Clarity means that things become clear. And so search out that moment of clarity and use that moment to transform yourself. And remember that it doesn't have to be, as in this case, an extreme event. You could have your moment of clarity right now, but take that moment and get it. Now, the last one you talked about is what do I need 
to end. And that is the concept of letting go. And I think that if we look at gratitude, doing what we like, keeping life simple, taking advantage of our moments of clarity and letting go, bow, boom, what a life. So that's what I took away. Anything you'd add to that? No, it's um, one of the things I talk about with the, the moments of clarity is they can have been in the past. They could be now. You can go back and look at what did you learn? When were you thrown out of your comfort zone? And take advantage of those times such that you can go, okay, because by the way, we have a habit of forgetting. We learn and then we go, oh, that's not important anymore because I've moved on to the next phase of life. And the answer is, eh, maybe not. Mm. We do so many things in our life and our careers based on what other people want us to do. Yep. And just because it makes us more money, gives us more prestige, doesn't necessarily make it better. I was very fortunate. My dad was an egghead. He was an economist, New York Stock Exchange. I joke, my dad wasn't frugal. He was cheap. And I learned not to spend money on stuff. And a few years ago, I made the decision. I told our son and everybody else, don't give me anything for Christmas or my birthday. I don't want any more stuff. You can give me experiences. I'll spend money on experiences, but stuff doesn't bring me joy. Don't give me your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like I, I bought a new bike over Christmas and because it allows me to experience things. Do I really, and do I have the fanciest bike? No, I bought one that was adequate to get me what I wanted to do. So I can have the experience I wanted. That's beautiful. I mean, stuff is such a burden sometimes. All right. Yep. Now I want to ask you the next question. And I want to think, I mean, I want you to think about this. I mean, obviously one of the answers to this question is just, you know, crash, crash in some way in your life and, you know, and learn from it. But I mean, obviously we'd like people to avoid having to go into a crash and I want you to keep that in mind as I ask you this question. Based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, it's interesting. We had this discussion. I run an online membership community. And we, a year ago, we had a set of mastermind groups where we talked about risk. And we looked at what is risk? How do you decide what risk is? How is something risky or not risky? And how do you mitigate that risk? Well, on my, I'll use the example. When I went out on that bike ride, I didn't think I was taking any risks. Mm. It was real risky. At other times when I left IBM, I viewed it as being real risky. It wasn't at all. We were already in the process of being acquired by Lucent. It wasn't risky at all. So it's learning how to be able to evaluate the risk and saying, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to make a change, what's the real risk? And I, I like to say, I've got a whole chapter in my book on a concept called MSU disorder. And MSU stands for make stuff up. <laughs> right? When we don't know, we tend to make stuff up. We fill the void of knowledge. So the key piece here is when you're going to do something and you're worried about, is it risky or go talk to people, 
get outside the, I mean, the inside of your head is one of the darkest places in the world, <laughs> which means you might have to go ask for help. Yep. And I'm a guy. I don't like asking for directions. So, you know, thank God, you know, when we drive through Mexico now, I got Miss Google. <laughs> and do you think that, do you think that that one piece of advice is ask for help? Yes. Is go get outside counsel mm. so that you're, because what's going to happen is very often we make decisions and we don't have all the information. We just fill it. Yep. And just like me, I went on that bike ride. My wife knew I was, she wasn't, she didn't go on that bike ride with me. She said, that's way too dangerous. I'm going, hey. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I ride my bike in Bangkok and, uh, you know, now at this age, one of the things, lessons that I've learned is that I think that a lot of success in life has to do with risk management, much more than I ever thought, in, whether it's managing money or whether it's living your life. So when I go out in the morning, I go out very early, number one, but not so early that drunks are driving around. So I usually hit the road at about 5 a.m. I go down a, a, an area that's got a lot less traffic. I've got a lot of lights on my bike. And I even have a reflective vest that I wear yep. and, you know, I look like a, a complete, you know, nerd or whatever, <laughs> but, and then I've got a, a great little side mirror that I added on to my wrist management so I can see cars coming. And I tend to go kind of into the middle of the lane so that they see me. And then when they come, yep. I then quickly move to the side. I mean, all of these things are risk management, you know, type of thing. And so you really remind me that, Risk management is critical. So let me yeah. ask you, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? For the next 12, 12 months is number one, I want to get the next Repurpose Your Career book out. Uh, I've done three editions. I want to do a, an edition based on the crap we've just gone through. And we're going through because mm -hmm. I think we won't know the level of disruption caused for at least the next six months. Mm -hmm. And two, I'm growing an online community, more people helping everybody else out. And for me, at this point in my life, I don't coach people individually anymore. I do everything through my online community. And that's far more gratifying of uh, people seeing other people going, what? You're doing what? You can do that? Yep. Right? And people who can encourage one another, because one of the challenges you know, I'm 64. Most of us have all this messaging in our brain saying, well, I should, you know, if I'm going to continue to work, I need to be a certain level of prestige and I need to be da, 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 da. And the answer is why. Yep. And having people who are willing to call your bluff and going, well, why are you doing that? So to learn more about that, should they listen to your repurpose your career podcast should they go to careerpivot.com if someone wants to learn more about your community yeah go to careerpivot.com slash community there's also the repurpose your career the sponsor is the community and i've been focusing the podcast for the last year on folks who are in the second half of life how are we going to transition get through this and a lot of it is mindset shifts Many people will never go back to full-time employment and that's fine. Although that's a different paradigm. And 
it's a matter of getting people to reshape their heads as to what's going to make me successful after this is over. And success in the future will not look like success in the past. I forget who said, what got you here won't get you to the next place. Yeah, that was a great book. And I can't remember the author now, but we'll put that in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, to reduce risk in your life. So go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and download the risk reduction checklist and see how you measure up. As we conclude, Mark, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you, yes, you, alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. The crowd goes wild. Do you have any parting words for the audience? (laughs) Well, I am honored, Andrew. And I said, what can I say? It's probably one of the greatest awards I've ever received. The cost of it was just a very severe bicycle accident. (laughs) So you've paid your dues. We appreciate you on the show. After the bike accident, I lost 18 pounds. And so one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to write the crash diet book. (laughs) (sighs) Because you get in front of a car, you can let it hit it to you. You know, you break a bunch of stuff. You can't get to the refrigerator, to get the beer, ice cream, or pizza. And that you have no choice but to lose weight. (laughs) I wonder if that'll be a bestseller or not. Well, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) that is a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. And we learn today our health. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.